Why does a piece of your MarTech stack fail? Why is it not successful? What I'll say is that the technology is only as successful as the people that are managing it. If you don't have the people to manage a new technology implementation, to manage the relationship with the vendor, to manage the training and documentation required for that technology, there's no point in bringing in that new technology. Hey, it's Dan McGaw. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of the leading tech stack agency, McGaw.io. Each week, I speak to executives to find out the stack they're using to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. This week, I've got Justin Sheriff. Justin is a MarTech veteran with over 15 years of experience working on some of the biggest names, including Vistaprint, LogMeIn, and Jaya. Now he's the VP of Marketing Operations at Calibra, a leader in the data intelligence space. I really appreciated that Justin and I share the view that any tool a marketer uses is considered MarTech. I consider MarTech to be any technology that a marketer uses, period. So it doesn't matter who owns it from a system or, or department perspective. If a marketer uses a technology, it's MarTech. In this episode, Justin shares the stack he's building to drive revenue at Calibra, and he shared a lot of great tips and tricks that only a MarTech veteran would know. Let's jump in. So I'm Justin Sheriff. I'm the Vice President of Marketing Operations at Calibra. Before Calibra, I was at a company called Jaya, where I ran their global marketing organization. It was about a 90-person startup. And before that, I ran marketing operations at LogMeIn, which is a 4,000-person software company with products such as GoToMeeting and LastPass, which many of the listeners have probably heard of. LastPass is like one of my favorite tools ever. So like, I'm a huge fan of LastPass. It's awesome. I, I was happy we use it at Calibra as well, which made everything really seamless for me to transition over, which was awesome. You know, before we keep moving on just a little bit here, I am a little curious. Um, Calibra, right? Help me better understand what Calibra does, how you kind of ended up there, what are they really good at? Calibra is a does data intelligence. So what that means is data governance, data cataloging data quality. So, you know, we're really focused on large enterprises. It's really important we found that large organizations have a data office or an IT organization that's really focused on the governance of the data, especially those organizations that might have thousands or tens of thousands of employees that need access to data. So Calibra makes that easier for those organizations to get the right data in the hands of the right people. In terms of why I went to Calibra, you know, I think the market was interesting. I was looking for marketing ops leadership roles, and I knew that as a leader of marketing ops, I really like getting my hands dirty. I really like leading change, and I don't like the kind of administrative chief of staff type of responsibilities that a lot of marketing ops leaders have. Calibra has a chief of staff to the CMO, and so it that partnership was really important to me in looking for a new role. And I've really, I think we've really thrived and flourished with that partnership between the chief of staff, myself, and my team, and really letting my team work on the business side and not having to worry about building PowerPoint decks and campaign managing the, the CMO. Now, when you think about your tech stack, right? Like, what's your overall approach to how you're managing your stack, and then as well as like what's in it? Like, can you give me like a ten foot view? 
Yeah. So for me, you know, I start with what are the foundational platforms that are important for the company. Typically, that's your marketing automation, your CRM, your analytics, things like that. So you know, you start there. That's the first thing that I'll do whenever I'm in an organization. Is make sure our foundational systems are are good. So you know, we have Marketo internally here at Calibra. We have Salesforce. You know, we use Google Analytics. Uh, we're just migrating to from WordPress to Adobe Experience Manager. So you know, we have a, we have some solid foundational platforms. And then for me, I'm definitely more of a best in class versus a, a sweet guy. So, you know, yes, we're using Marketo and yes, we're using Adobe Experience Manager, but we're on Google Analytics. We're not on Adobe Analytics, for example, right? So my my thing is start with the best in class solutions, make sure you have people that can support them and then kind of add on from there. But you know, from the rest of our stack, we have demand base for our ABM, we have Drift for chat. We use Visible for attribution, but we're also doing some of our own attribution. We use Tableau. We're, we're huge Tableau users. So Tableau is a partner of ours as a, as a company, but we're also huge Tableau users in, in marketing and sales ops as well. So you know, those are some of the core systems. And then you know, I, I want best in class stuff for my end users, my my internal customers. So when an end you know an end user or or a customer, an internal customer of mine comes to me and says, Hey, I'm I'm dealing with this problem. I need a tool or technology. We're going out and we're figuring out what's the best option and what's the best option for us. And usually that is looking at, you know, not just cost or name recognition, but you know, what's going to scale with us and what's going to plug into our stack best. Yeah. Like you've been in the game a while, so you've got to have some fondness to some of these things. Yeah. I mean I I definitely Marketo is something that I think is really important to have. Once we moved to Marketo at, at LogMeIn, that was a big change for us. That was something that that really uh, was a game changer for us, both from an organization but also from a recruiting perspective. I think you know having a, a Martech stack that people are looking at and, and admiring and can respect is is a good recruiting tool because people look for that. They look for Marketo. If they're a Marketo, you know, Marketo certified, they're a Marketo expert, a Marketo champion, they they want to go somewhere that uses Marketo. So I think that's something that can really be used as a recruiting tactic in a lot of ways. I think that's uh, key spot on. One of the things that I think is really, really unique as well is that Marketo, and also Salesforce is really good at this, is they've made it so that their tool is part of somebody's identity. If you look at the number of people that are like, I'm a Marketo-er, whatever they call it, I'm a Marketo fearless champion, yep. people literally have Marketo as part of their identity, and that means that like that tool is not going anywhere for a long period of time. Even though, in my opinion, from the other side of it, CDPs are going to take Marketo and Salesforce down. Yeah, I agree. I mean, CDP space is is really hot, and and I think it has the potential to be huge. But I also think that a lot of people are struggling with how to implement it and how to make it successful and how to deal with the change management that comes with you know a move to a CDP. So I I, I think the one thing that's interesting about marketing ops people and Marketo people in particular is. They can usually pick up new tools pretty quickly. I think you know they have that aptitude to switch over. So, for example, when I was at LogMeIn, we were using Marketo and Silverpop at the same time, and so people that were Marketo people, they they didn't take them long to learn Silverpop and vice versa. And so you've had that aptitude, you know how it works or how it should work. And if the tools make it fairly straightforward to get from A to Z, then I think most technologically savvy people will figure that out pretty quickly. They may not like it, but they'll figure it out pretty quickly. 
Now you've worked at all of these different companies of different sizes, right? I mean, LogMeIn is massive, J- Jaya, and then now Calibra. Like, without getting into like the nitty gritties and stuff, like, how are all of your stacks different compared to Calibra today? Like, what's the big difference about Calibra and these other ones? LogMeIn was a huge stack. We had 75, 80 different technologies. We had a 230-person marketing department. Um, and those are technologies that marketing managed, right, or marketing used. That didn't include things like Salesforce, which was owned by the sales team. Jaya had a tiny stack. We probably had five to 10 tools. We had a very small budget, small team. You know, we didn't have a lot of resources to manage a whole bunch of tools. So we had you know, the marketing automation, the CRM, the chat, and you know a couple of small other tools, but that was about it. And Calibra is somewhere in between. You know, we're we're only like I said about 50, 55 marketers, so we don't have the bandwidth or the money or the resources to have every tool in the world. I'd say it's the point solutions that you miss out on as you get smaller. At LogMeIn, we might have a five thousand dollar tool that one person was using, and that was like for one specific purpose. You can't do that at a smaller company; it just becomes too expensive. So you know, we we have to make sure that the money that that we're spending is being applied across the organization and, and multiple people can use it. So I think that's the biggest difference is these like point solutions become a lot more popular at a larger company because you have a much smaller group of people that have a very specific focus on one thing and that's what they need the tool for. Finding the stack that works for your company size is a key part of setting your team up for success. As Justin mentioned, budget is a really big factor. Having more tools means paying more money. That's why it's crucial to have a game plan. You need to know what your stack is inside and out. A surprising amount of businesses vastly underestimate the size of their stack, and often they do this by about 50%. Now, this stack comes from Blissfully's 2019 SaaS Trends report. They found that the disconnect between the estimation and actual tools grows as the company gets larger. Another thing eating away at your stack budget is redundant subscriptions. In Blissfully's 2020 report, they found that on average, companies were paying for about three and a half duplicate subscriptions. And that number doubled year over year from 2019. And then the larger company, the more duplicate tools you're going to have in your stack. The takeaway, though, is that building the right stack means consistently evaluating the tools you're using and removing things as often as possible. Otherwise, you're facing bloated software expenses, lots of technical debt, and confusion on your marketing team. Now let's get back to Justin. When you think about the company, though, what's the big, hairy, audacious goal? I mean, it's to be the leader in the data intelligence category. That's it, right? When we when we look at who our competitors are and what space we're in, we want people to look at Calibra and say, oh, I want to work with Calibra. I want to use the Calibra product. It's the best in class. They lead the data intelligence category. So that's the goal, um, you know, trying to sell that in to large organizations and, and make sure that when they think of data intelligence and data catalog and data governance and data quality, we're it. That's where we want to be. What does success look like in one year or even five years for y'all? If you had to think in 12 months from now, like what is going to make y'all successful with the things that you're doing? You know, a year from now, when we think about what made us successful uh, or what didn't, I would say adding new logos that are, you know, in the, whether it's Fortune 500 or Global 2000 or Global 5000, whatever you want to call it, adding as many new logos as possible and then expanding the relationships with our existing customers. You know, it's definitely, 
with any large enterprise purchase where there's multiple product solutions, you know, there's a land and expand component as well. You know, a company might say, "Hey, we want to bring you in for this part of the company and we're going to add you to this other part of the company a year from now if things go successfully." So, uh, I'd say expanding our existing relationships and bringing on new logos um, whether it's again Fortune 500 or Global 2000 or Global 5000, companies that can afford us and can benefit from our solution is most important. Now, when you think about getting those new logos and even expanding, so it sounds like expansion is a large part of the strategy. What are the the main KPIs that you're focused on that are going to help you reach those goals, right? And what are the the ladder of KPIs? You know, we try to align as not necessarily perfectly, but as much as possible to the the serious decisions funnel. So, you know, we're looking at at the top of the funnel how many people are engaging with us, right? We call them inquiries, and then we qualify those inquiries based on demographic, firmographic, and behavioral criteria. You know, demographic meaning who are they, firmographic meaning what does their account or company look like, and behavioral meaning what did they do. So we're using all three of those to determine whether somebody is you know ready for a sales discussion. And then you know we're talking about a, a sales funnel. We have a, a BDR qualification process where they pass along to an account executive who then deals with negotiations and, and going through the funnel, uh, the sales stages. So for us in marketing, our KPIs are all those metrics. So we look at the top of the funnel metrics, but we're also looking at our pipeline generation. And you know a lot of companies look at pipeline based on you know who the source was. Is it marketing source? Is it sales source? Is it partner sourced? You know, we're looking at the top of funnel marketing metric, but we're really accountable for the total pipeline number. So when we look at you know how successful are we, we're looking at how much pipeline did sales generate in this quarter, how much pipeline did they close. So we're trying to really align with the sales organization to make sure that our goals are aligned with their goals as well. What are some of the, maybe the biggest uh, challenges or even failures that you've kind of run into, not only at Calibra, but maybe in some of your other companies, about things you've done in the stack that just does not work out? I think the biggest thing is you need to have somebody to manage the technology. So, you know, oftentimes you'll have a single person who knows the technology and that person leaves the organization and, you know, it just falls flat on its face. That's, I think, the biggest challenge is, is having a, a single point of failure for a specific technology. So, you know, one thing that, that I've tried to do at all the companies I've been at, both as a marketing leader, but also as a marketing ops leader, is create some redundancy across the team. So I want every single person on my team to have 20 overlap with somebody else on the team so that if they're out of office, if they're slammed with work, they have kind of a built-in buddy or backup that can help out with that work, that can maybe give them a second set of eyes to make sure that you know, what they're doing uh, makes sense. Or you know, if they have something really urgent, this other person can cover for them. So I think about you know my team as kind of a Venn diagram, and each person is a circle in that Venn diagram and has overlap with another person who's a circle in that Venn diagram. And I think it's been really helpful because it helps with turnover and it helps with uh, with people who might be on vacation or might be slammed with work. Yeah. I love that. Uh, here we have a thing known as the linchpin policy. So everybody here uh, at our company is required to take at least two weeks off consecutively once a year. So that way uh, there is a guaranteed checkpoint that that person is gone for two weeks, which means somebody needs to own their responsibility, which forces our organization to make sure that we can't have anybody who's a linchpin that if they do a vacation, we're screwed. Uh, so I completely agree with your, your thought process there. When you think about MarTech, right? Like, what is your definition of MarTech and how might that be different than other marketers in the space? 
I consider MarTech to be any technology that a marketer uses, period. So it doesn't matter who owns it from a system or, or department perspective. If a marketer uses a technology, it's MarTech. So you know what that means is that sales tech is also MarTech. Finance tech is also MarTech. So that's what I consider MarTech. And, and I think a lot of people think about MarTech as like, the tools that the marketing team owns, that they manage, et cetera. But I think that's a short-sighted definition because marketers, no matter who owns the tool, they come to marketing ops when they have questions. And so I consider that MarTech. You know, so even something like Excel, I consider Excel MarTech. People might not consider that MarTech. It's absolutely MarTech from my perspective because marketers are using it all the time. So project management tools like Asana is, is a big tool that we use here internally. Um, it's a project management tool. It's MarTech, 100% MarTech. So, mm. Now, so how important is project management as a whole to your brand, right? You've mentioned Asana, but it, and that's a part of marketing tech. Like, How big of a deal is project management for y'all? It's huge. It's really core to what we do uh, on a day-to-day basis. We have weekly meetings, daily meetings to talk about triaging work within uh, Asana, the tasks that need to be done, who needs to do it, when's it's going to be due, who are the stakeholders. It's really, really important. And it, it's not just my team that manages that stuff. You know, Creative goes through Asana. Analytics goes through Asana. Marketo goes through Asana. So even things like questions, our website, all of our website stuff goes through Asana. So if you notice a bug on our website, you open up a ticket in Asana. Um, so everything goes through Asana. All the teams are using it, and it's really core to our DNA here. That DNA core Justin just mentioned is something that everyone building a stack should be thinking about. A stack is going to contain specific software that will exist within specific teams. But in order to be a successful cross-functional team, you have to have the glue that holds everyone together. Project management tools like Asana are the glue that keep all of your stack moving forward. It's kind of like the thought, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Of course, it makes a sound. This said, if you're in marketing and working on a stack, chances are if you don't have a good project management tool, no one is going to hear that you made a sound in the stack. Teams need a good way to submit stack changes, gain approval, get shit done, and communicate about where things stand. This all happens because of a project management tool and possibly through tools like Slack or even Teams. No matter what, though, these are all part of the stack. Now you talk about, of course, you have Marketo and maybe you need to re-architect it. You talked about kind of talking with leadership and talking with different teams. I mean, how important is the partnership that you have with leadership and then as well as the rest of the team? Can you help me better understand that dynamic since like IT seems to be kind of shared through the stack? Yeah, that's a good question. So from a leadership perspective, you know, I'm I am on the marketing leadership team. So not every marketing ops leader has that seat, which I think is really great. And and our CMO is not super technical. She uses Tableau all the time, but she's not from the marketing ops world. So she trusts me and she trusts my team to know what's best for the organization. But in terms of my partnership with the rest of marketing leadership, you know, I partner really closely with our revenue marketing team, our revenue marketing leader, our digital marketing leader. You know, we're constantly talking about what's working, what's not, how we can integrate better, what are the best tools out there that we're not using, you know, what resources do we need to get more use out of our existing stack. So I think that's pretty good. And then from an IT perspective, you know, we have a, a monthly meeting with uh, our IT leaders. Um, so it's kind of like marketing, marketing ops, sales ops, and, and IT, or our enterprise application IT. We meet with them monthly to talk about roadmap. 
And then within that, I have a meeting with the VP of, of IT. My director has a meeting with the director of enterprise applications every month. So we're really in tune with them. We try to make sure that our priorities are aligned, that we make sure that resources are aligned correctly. And I think that's really integral. Like marketing ops, people say like marketing ops used to live in IT and now it lives in marketing. And and I think that's a fair assumption, but you still have to have that relationship with IT. If you don't have that relationship with IT and sales ops for that matter as well, you're not going to get buy-in, you're not going to get their help with cross-functional projects. So I think it's really, really important to have a close, tight relationship with both IT and with the sales ops and the sales tech team. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, when when you talk about IT as an example, one of the things that I think is interesting is like marketing operations and sales operations has eaten have eaten into what IT does. What does IT actually do at your firm for y'all, like or in general? I'll give you an example of a project that we were working on. So we just implemented Allocadia for performance management or budget management. And so my team, along with with finance, did the whole Allocadia implementation, setting up the instance, etc. But we're working on an integration, and we're almost there. We're actually we're in the QA phases, an integration between Alcadia and Jira and NetSuite. So essentially what's going to happen is within Alcadia, when a marketer puts in their budget, they can request a PO directly from Alcadia. And what that's going to do is it's going to create a Jira ticket, which is where we do our, our PO request. It's going to create an automatic Jira ticket, which goes to our procurement team, which goes to our legal and, and finance team. And the information from Alcadia is going through Jira all the way up to NetSuite. So NetSuite now has the Alcadia ID in NetSuite. And then when our actuals come back from NetSuite into Alcadia, we have the uh, NetSuite ID matching with the Alcadia ID. So it's all kind of full circle, closed loop. So where we needed IT is we needed IT's help with the Jira implementation, with the NetSuite implementation, and then the the extracting from NetSuite into Alcadia. So we partnered with them because they own those systems. We partnered with them to make sure that that integration is set up and working correctly across the different systems. So you know that's where marketing and IT is really important. We had to get on the IT roadmap. We had to make sure that they had the resources. We had to make sure that we had the requirements for them um, so that they knew what we needed to do and that they knew the importance of the project for marketing and what the benefits were for the organization. So they might not own Alcadia, that's us, but they own some of the systems that are required to really make Alcadia hum. And so you know, I think that's a really good example of, of what IT does for us and why it's important for us to be really connected with them. Yeah, now excuse my ignorance, but I don't have a lot of familiarity around Alcadia. What is Alcadia for y'all? Like, Why are you implementing it? Yeah, it's for budget management. So, so many organizations, you know, use Excel or Google Sheets to manage their budget, right? And I've seen a lot of companies they just set up a huge spreadsheet with columns for, you know, start date and end date and vendor and cost. And as soon as you put the information in there, it's out of date and there's no change logging, you know, activity logs and, you know, you have people selecting bad information and you have to create a whole bunch of, you know, summary reports and pivot tables and you need somebody constantly managing that. Alcadia is basically an enterprise budget management solution that gives you everything that you would need to do to manage your budget, whether it's you know across regions or across geos or across type. It gives you change logs, you can load actuals in, you can have purchase order information in there. So it's I found it to be a really helpful um, platform and we had it at LogMeIn and, and we decided to bring it in here at Calibra as well. And so far so good, been really happy with it. Justin brings up a great point about why you shouldn't use spreadsheets for budget management. 
Regardless of how well you know Excel, spreadsheets are often riddled with bad data. They can also be incredibly time-consuming. Users will spend far too long inputting and updating data, customizing formulas, and tracking down dead links or old data. But errors are going to happen, and despite being easy to miss, they can become very noticeable. As an example, in 2019, Canadian company Canopy Growth cited a spreadsheet formula as the reason they underreported their losses by over $100 million. They promptly issued a press release and a news report with the correct data. While big errors like this aren't extremely common, little ones are. That's why it's important to think about utilizing enterprise budget management tools like Justin has done for his team. We recently interviewed Peter Mahoney, CEO of Plana, a marketing planning and budgeting tool. I'd recommend checking out that episode to learn more. Now, let's get back to Justin. When you think about your stack today, right, what gets you most pumped up and excited to work on or work with? There's a lot of things that get me excited, but I think the thing that gets me excited is is when we can do things better and faster. So, you know, I think getting Asana really humming gets me really excited. You know, makes me realize how efficient we can be with our marketing team and with our work. Um, and it really helps us to show how much work we're doing, how much progress we're making. So that's really exciting for me. Tableau is something that I think is just awesome. So my director of analytics built this amazing interactive dashboard that any marketer can go in and they can look at the results by campaign or by you know program type or by region or by target account segment or by VP in charge of sales. And you can cut it by any which way. You can look at trends, you can look at aggregate data, you can look at targets versus actuals. And, and so that has been really exciting to see our end users, our internal customers in marketing, just playing around with that and and asking us really insightful questions about the data that they didn't have before, that they didn't have access before. So that's really exciting when the marketers are coming to us with questions about campaign performance and questions about how we're doing versus our goals. And, and then we can really become you know, advisors and consultants for them and, and really help them think about how they can be doing their jobs better. I think the other thing that we're just dipping our toes into this, um, but I've seen it really successful at other companies, is using some of the the low-code, no-code solutions. So things like Workato and, and bringing data from disparate systems together to create workflows, that's something that I think is really good and kind of plugging holes with where native integrations don't necessarily work as well as... Uh, as you'd like them to. So there's limitations to the Marketo and Salesforce integration. And uh, you know, being able to plug those holes with something like Workato is is something that I think is is pretty cool and, and underutilized by a lot of marketing organizations. What's uh, how could you better define Workato for the audience? Yeah, Workato is a, a low-code, no-code solution um, similar to, to Zapier. So I think most people have probably heard of Zapier, right? You create a Zap and it connects one system with another system without really having to know, um, you know any sort of coding language. So Workato is kind of an enterprise solution um, that's similar to Zapier, but, but can do a lot more and uh, has a lot more integrations. And you know, other systems out there can do it like a, a Tray.io or um, trying to think of some of the other ones that are out there right now. But I think Tray and, and Zapier and Workato are probably the ones that most people have heard of. Now I have to ask, right, in your career, let's stick to the career here, what is the biggest explosion, mistake, or failure that you've experienced in the stack, right? Like what has gone haywire where you just had to like spend three days in recovery to fix it? 
Uh, I have a couple of good examples there. Most of them are surrounding email, I would say. So, so there's two in particular that I'll, that stand out to me. The first one was uh, when I was at LogMeIn, we sent an email to 30,000 people that was supposed to be in English, and it went out in Japanese. That was a tough one. Um, you know, we definitely got some feedback there. Uh, and you know, thirty thousand sounds like a lot to probably a lot of the listeners and a lot of people in in marketing ops or in marketing. But at Log Me In, that's like a drop in the bucket. That is. A I was going to say that's not that's not a lot of people, but it's not a lot of people. But you know, at at Jaya, our database was was barely more than that. So you know, it, it would seem like a lot. But at Log Me In, it was a drop in the bucket. So that was that was one. Um, and uh, I didn't hit send on that one, but but it was somebody on my team who did that. Who I I still give them a hard time, you know. Ten years later, give them a hard time about that. The other one that I personally did um, was similar. We were doing a pricing promotion. I had logged me in. It was supposed to go to people that had used our product in the past, like the free version, and it was you know let's say twenty percent off or thirty percent off to upgrade to the paid version. And so I sent it to about a hundred thousand people that had never engaged with that product before. And I thought to myself, oh my God, this is a disaster. It brought in like $60,000. People who had never heard of our product, there was no reason for them to buy the product, but just sending them an email that said like, hey, get 30% off. Apparently there were a lot of people that just had their credit cards ready to buy. So uh, that was a, it was a mistake that, um, you know, that ended up working out well because it exposed a whole bunch of people to our product, or one of our products that, that they maybe hadn't seen before. Now, when you think about those mistakes, right? Like what lessons did you learn from that? Like, is there anything that you've put into place or you now do in your, your kind of routine to make sure those mistakes don't happen? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the webinar one is whenever you make a webinar mistake, people are quick to blame the technology. It's like, oh, I don't like WebEx. I don't like go to webinar. It makes it too confusing. The end of the day, I'd say 99% of problems with webinars are user error problems. So what we've tried to do is create more enablement materials, better testing and QA, and do a dry run for everything. So everything has to have a dry run. If you're not running a webinar unless you do a dry run first with all the presenters, you make sure that you have people joining as attendees and as presenters and as hosts and things like that. So I think putting guidelines or processes and training in place is really the best thing that you can do. The other thing I'd say is is make people feel like it's okay to make mistakes. You know, I want to create a culture on the team that mistakes are okay, right? You just got to learn from it and you got to figure out how to to make sure that you don't do it again in the future. And oftentimes that's QA and really making sure that you have good processes to make sure that somebody else is looking at your work before it goes out the door. No matter how much QA you do, there will always be mistakes. As a leader, it really comes down to how you handle these mistakes. I would advise first trying to understand what happened and choose to be patient with everybody involved. If things were an innocent mistake and not a pattern, I would not really go all ham on your team. Things break in the stack, errors will happen, and you want to support your team in making mistakes as this means they're pushing the limits to help you grow your company. Not all mistakes can be prevented, and I have tons of them. One of my favorite stories years ago was when I was working at Kistmetrics. Neil Patel, my boss, was presenting on a webinar with Tim Ash, like one of the most famous guys in CRO. There was maybe 800 to 1,000 people watching live. I decided to check in and see how everything was going and accidentally clicked Neil's presenter link in the calendar invite and was immediately dropped into the webinar. One, I was dropped in as Neil, but two, I was dropped in with a live mic and everybody could hear what I was saying. This wouldn't really have been a big deal if I wasn't talking at the time of clicking the link. Well, I was for sure talking, and that exact moment I was saying, fuck Lars, he's lucky to be moving to Europe. And then all of a sudden, I heard silence from the webinar. Yep, everyone on the webinar heard me. 
And oh my gosh, how embarrassing. Not only did people hear me, but when the host tried to kick out the duplicate Neil, they actually kicked out the real Neil, and I was still in the webinar, even though I wasn't Neil. Long story short, the webinar ended fine, Neil crushed it as he always does, and I learned the hard lesson of shutting up when clicking on webinar links as you never know when you're going to have a hot mic. <sighs> For somebody like yourself who's been in the stack, you've worked in the stack, you've worked at companies that I would consider MarTech, I mean, hell, you're working at a company now, Calibra, which I would say is MarTech. I would, I would call it stack, but either way, what do you see in the future when it comes down to the stack? Like if we think five years, 10 years ahead... What gets you most excited and what do you think is really going to be a game changer for all of us? Yeah, I think more automation, the better. Um, the more set it and forget it, but manage it, I think is the stuff that, that's really interesting to me. I think the things that require a lot of hand-holding are the things that are that I think are going to be obsolete down the road. Those are the types of things that are kind of set it and forget it with some sort of monitoring or management. So I think that's the big thing. I, I think we got to move away from things that need to be really actively touched every single day. So I, I think that's what gets me excited is, is automation and figuring out a way to make people's lives easier so that they can spend more time thinking about what's next and making the the other hard thing, the next hard thing, easier. So why does an implementation fail? Why does a piece of your MarTech stack fail? Why is it not successful? And what I'll say is that the technology is only as successful as the people that are managing it. So if you don't have the people to manage a new technology implementation, to manage the relationship with the vendor, to manage the training and documentation required for that technology, there's no point in bringing in that new technology. So you know, as part of an evaluation process, when you're thinking about bringing on new tech, it's really important for you to think about who's going to manage this tech, what's the onboarding process going to look like, what's the upkeep process going to look like, can somebody do the documentation it's needed so that when new employees start, they know how to use the technology, so that they, you know, they have training materials, et cetera. And, and that's why we see most technology fail is it just gets purchased and then left on the shelf. But if you have an active owner, you're going to see a lot more of your technology being successful uh, in your stack. Well, Justin, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for being able to make it on. I really appreciate you taking the time to be able to talk to me and as well as our audience and uh, looking forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, I appreciate it, Dan. This was great. And I uh, look forward to hearing more from you and uh, on the topic of, of the stack. Justin's all-around knowledge is great. Building a stack can feel really complicated, and there are a lot of mistakes that can be made. But Justin's approach to looking at things from a stripped-down point of view has led him to massive success in his career. So let's go over some of the things that we can learn from him. First, start with best-in-breed tools and then go from there. You may feel inclined to stick with a sweep because you have one tool from that set and it works well. While that may seem like a good idea, it forces you to settle for solutions that aren't right for your team. For example, Marketo is an amazing enterprise-grade marketing automation platform. While it can send emails, embed forms, and do all sort of automation stuff, in my opinion, their landing page features are pretty bad. And if you want good landing pages, you need to get a best-in-breed tool like Unbounce or Instapage. And another great point from Justin was about relationships between teams. You have different tools for a reason. Different teams need different things. But this can also mean cross-functional projects are not always cross-functional. Justin gave us two main solutions to keep everything in sync. Without buy-in from all players, you're going to face a lot of issues. Another fail-safe is to have built-in overlap. 
Isolating a tool's management to one person will inevitably lead to issues if that person leaves the company or needs extended time off. For Justin, he's got a rule that every team member must have 25% overlap with someone else. While this type of redundancy can seem like an easy cut when considering your operational cost, it helps your team's harmony and saves you when the inevitable, unexpected issue arises. And to finish off with perhaps Justin's greatest point, the computer is never wrong. How would you account for this discrepancy between you and the Twin 9000? Well, I don't think there is any question about it. It can only be attributable to human error. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. Okay, sometimes a computer is wrong, but not often. Justin said that in his experience, about 99% of the time, if something goes wrong, it is a human's error. This is why knowing your tech and doing dry runs is essential. Mistakes will happen. But just to clarify, in the case of HAL 9000 from Space Odyssey, it really was human error. But I digress. Join me each week on The Stack. And because you're interested in this podcast, naturally the next step is to get a free copy of my book, Build Cool Shit, by visiting buildcoolshit.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.